Well, good morning and welcome to this presentation of Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. The title of this message today is The Ecclesia Scattered. The theme of the book of Acts, of the transitional book of Acts of the Apostles, is the kingdom of God, and specifically how Jesus was going to build his ecclesia through his followers to project the kingdom of God. Between the ascension of Jesus and the second advent, the kingdom of God is being built in and through the ecclesia. This is the legacy of Jesus. Remember the difference between destiny and legacy is destiny is what you accomplish while you are in this life. Legacy is what's accomplished through your disciples after you're gone. And when I say your disciples, I mean making disciples of Jesus. You are a tool by which you do that, but God will use your work to make those disciples and then accomplish what he wants to do in and through them. Between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he explained to his followers that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill his legacy. He said this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my martus, and the English translate that Greek word, witnesses, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In the first seven chapters of Acts, the focus was on establishing the ecclesia and its initial growth in Jerusalem. During this time, some of, some of the foundational truth about the ecclesia as the instrument of the kingdom of God was revealed. So some examples of the truth that was revealed now in this early stages of the birth and the growth of the Christian community were, the, number one, is the continuity of the Old and New Testament. Secondly, the clarity on the identity of Jesus as both Lord and Christ, something we're confused about today. We tend to think of him maybe as, as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, but we neglect him as Lord. Thirdly, salvation includes the power to affect forgiveness of sins and the power to live for Jesus through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, salvation is a process that is affected by sovereign grace. Next, the foundational practices of the first ecclesia were devotion to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, arguably, you could say that, that one of the definitions of an ecclesia even today would be a group of people that profess to be Christians, and acknowledged Jesus as both Lord and Christ and did these things. The Apostles' Doctrine, they focused, they were devoted to these things. It's important to recognize the devotion, which means it was a priority. This is where they put their energy. Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking in bread and prayer and all that goes into that. They also had a unity of heart and mind in Christ that was the basis of wise stewardship. So you saw in the first Christian community the ability to use money to serve the purpose of God rather than using money to serve our purposes. The high standards expected of the ecclesia were established and tested. And finally, the power of the C4 principle to facilitate the kingdom, accelerate the growth of the ecclesia, and effect evangelism was displayed. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, a food distributor, who completed his race and died for Christ, the very first one, was not an apostle. He was a marketplace man. So these are some of the things that, that revealed in the first 
first seven chapters of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 through 7 was preparation for the ecclesia to be scattered according to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. First to Judea and Samaria and then in Acts 8 and ultimately to the Gentiles in Acts 10. So here starting at chapter 8 now, we're starting the, the dispersion. In fact, that's the word you're going to see used to talk about the scattering is the word dispersion. God is dispersing his ecclesia for the purpose of fulfilling Acts 1.8, and he uses persecution as the tool of dispersing. So if you have ears to hear that, maybe that gives you some clues as to what likely is going to happen in the days ahead as we see the spirit of Antichrist rising up with a vengeance in the world today. Chapter 7 concluded with Saul approving, perhaps serving as even the herald, declaring the martyrdom of Stephen. Of course, he didn't couch it as a martyrdom. He couched it as a righteous execution for heresy, but it was really the martyrdom of Stephen for Christ. And this initiated a persecution of the ecclesia in Jerusalem that led to the dispersion. And Saul began to ravage the ecclesia through home invasions and forced incarcerations. And the ecclesia, except for the apostles, were scattered into Judea and Samaria. So let's go ahead and take a look at this text. So as we look at um, chapter one, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, let me read it, and I'll make some comments about it. Saul agreed. That is, he heartily agreed. That's the idea here. There's intense agreement here with putting him to death. That is Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution. It wasn't just a persecution. It was severe. A severe persecution broke out against the church, the ecclesia in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. And the word for scattered there is diasporia, which we get the word dispersion from. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned over him. Who were those devout men if all of them were scattered? We'll talk about that in a moment. And Saul, however, was ravaging, that is, treating with shameful intent and injury the ecclesia. He would enter house after house, dragging off men and women, and put them in prison. So a few comments here. Why were all except the apostles scattered? You know, was it literally all, or is the language just hyperbole for the sake of emphasis? Well, it's probably hyperbole, which intimates that most were scattered, but there may have been a remnant who remained with the apostles. And we'll see reason for that in just a moment. But first, the word translated scattered in verses 1 and again in verse 4 is the verb dysporio. The, uh, root, of the, uh, the root of this, the noun, is dysporia. The word was used in reference to the Old Testament dispersion, this Old Testament dysporia of Israel for sin, that is the sin of failing to obey the Old Testament law. Now we have a new dispersion in the New Testament. It's a dispersion now that's a righteous dispersion, not a dispersion for judgment of sin, but a dispersion to spread the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Acts 8, the dispersion, is a good dispersion. It's suffering for righteousness for the purpose of a good good end, which is the good news about Jesus is going to be spread. The persecution was at least in part a fulfillment of Acts 1.8. 
the apostles and by inference Jesus' disciples would be empowered by the Holy Spirit and by his be his witnesses to all ethnicities, starting with Judea and Samaria. It's interesting that Judea is really not covered in Acts 8. It clearly is mentioned. The apostles were clearly, you know, the disciples were really spread into Judea, but we don't have a record of details of what happened there. The record we have is of Samaria. So Samaria is a very interesting place, as we shall see in the next few verses. But first, Saul would become the apostle Paul, was the one singled out as the one who was ravaging the ecclesia. He persecuted those who believed that the, Jesus was Lord and Christ. Saul was the leader of the thought police who had the authority to invade homes and arrest those who were part of the first ecclesia. Perhaps this is a harbinger of what's coming as the spirit of Antichrist increasingly arises in the world today. Now, one last comment. You'll notice that there were people that, that buried Stephen here, according to chapter verse 2. And these were devout men, devout men. Now, now, who were these devout men if all were scattered? That is, all the disciples were scattered except the apostles out of Jerusalem. Who were these devout men who buried Stephen? Well, I think the way to understand this is this word all here is not all without exception. Okay? It's basically all without distinction. And so in hermeneutics, we have to recognize when we read the word all, that sometimes there may be hyperbole. And I believe that there's hyperbole here uh, relative to the meaning of the word hall, which is why I made the comment before. And I suspect that there were some remnant of disciples left with the apostles, and it was that remnant of the disciples who were the men who buried Stephen. So it's an interesting hermeneutical point that you may want to keep in mind because you probably have heard Bible teachers uh, in many schools of thought today who are not well trained in hermeneutics, and they will say things like all means all. Well, not exactly. You've got to be more discerning than that if you're going to see some of these nuances in Scripture. Now let's go on to Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching. This is evangelizo is the word. Evangelizo is, means to declare good news. It was used in a kind of a generic way in the Greek language, and now we're using it specifically referring to the good news about Jesus being the Christ and Lord of all. So they went on their way preaching the word. Sometimes they'll use the word evangelizo without anything else, and the inference is preaching the word. Sometimes they will put logos in there, as they did here, which is specifically preaching the word. So you'll have it inferred, and sometimes it's explicit. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed, and now we have a different word, Caruso, the Messiah, that is the Christ to them. The crowds were all paying attention. That is, they were listening with one accord to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now, a few comments on this text. The dispersion of the Old Testament was well known to the Jews. They understood and were living under the, the paralyzing effects of the dispersion. They understood that it happened because of the sin of their ancestors, and many in the first ecclesia were heirs of that dispersion. 
But with the advent of the New Testament ecclesia, a new dispersion occurred that was used by God to fulfill Acts 1.8, at least in part. In other words, God used persecution to disperse the ecclesia, not to f- facilitate judgment, but redemption. Now, God may be getting ready to use persecution to, to disperse the Christians out of large cities to force them into smaller communi- communities. So we may see dispersion in a different sense in our lifetimes as we live out what God is doing now. So it may be different. Preaching the word is the English translation of the Greek word evangelizo, the common word for gospel or good news. The word is almost exclusively used in reference to the good news that Jesus is both Lord and Christ in the New Testament. This is the first occurrence of the word in the book of Acts. It appears five times in Acts chapter 8, and then 15 times in the book of Acts, and 95 times in the New Testament. So evangelizo is the normal word that we translate gospel or good news. Preaching the word meant to proclaim the validation that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, as prophesied in the Old Testament scripture, and the corresponding implications. You see, there's always implications to the reality that Jesus is Lord in Christ, and that's what the Gospels are are revealing to us and what the letters and the epistles and the book of Acts are unpacking for us as we go through this. Remember, we're in a transition time here in the book of Acts, learning what it means that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So going on now to verses 9 through 13. Uh, A man named Simon had been previously practicing sorcery, and that is magic. He was a magician in the city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be both someone great, and they all paid attention to him, from least of them to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time, but they believed Philip. That is, they had faith. Pistuo is a common word for faith. As he proclaimed the good news, the evangelizo, about the kingdom of God. And now you have the evangelizo is more, more qualified here. It's the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus proclaimed a gospel of the kingdom. Between his resurrection and ascension, he focused on the kingdom And the the kingdom of God is the message of the book of Acts that you'll see throughout, including here. And at the very end, you'll see when Paul is in Rome incarcerated, he's talking about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. These are inseparably connected, and this is the heart of the kingdom message. It's the good news about the kingdom of God being restored and the uncontested rule and reign of Christ will be restored at the end. But we're in the battle, the war between two seeds. And while this battle is being fought out, we have a role to play in this battle that will lead to victory. Reading on, he says, even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that that were being performed. So what we have here is we have sorcery going on. People are confused. They think 
because the magician is proclaiming himself someone to be good. He's using that rhetoric. They're actually believing him. They're believing a lie. And we have that going on today in spades. We have people making claims, proclamations about what they say is true that are actually lies. And this is the way the enemy works. The spirit of Antichrist is always going to project lies and contend that it's true. And the Samaritans were interesting people because they had long ago abandoned the law. They were no longer subject to the Mosaic law. At least they, uh, they were not submitted to it. They were still subject to it in the sense they were responsible for it, but they had abandoned it. So they were doing their own thing, making up their own rules. They'd even come up with their own sacrificial system, their own priesthood. And now they were no longer submitted to the word of God in any form, which is why they were viewed as second-class citizens by the Jews. And this is why when Jesus had the encounter with the Samaritan woman, she was shocked that a Jew would talk with her because Samaritans were truly second-class citizens. And this is a time when they very much had a class system. Ontological equality wasn't well understood. And so, yeah, the Jews were very biased. They were racist in that sense that they were not accepting and they did not value and they did not treat it with respect, the Samaritans. So they were the outcast. So like the Egyptian magicians in Exodus, Simon's power source was the kingdom of darkness. The people in Samaria were so duped that they wrongly attributed the power behind his acts to God. But like the acts of Moses were superior to the Egyptian magicians, Philip's signs and wonders exceeded the magic arts of Simon that even so much exceeded him that he was amazed. Philip's teaching was confirmed powerfully with signs and wonders. The word evangelizo translated here, proclaim the good news. And here, the good news, the, the proclamation of the good news, it's all one. It's a one that's all the evangelizo. There are no extra words there. It's just evangelizo is translated, propagated, proclaim the good uh, news. The heart of the message was the kingdom of God, the process of restoring the rule and reign of God over his creation. In the current state, God's rule is opposed by the kingdom of darkness. But in the end, the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, the protevangelum, will be fulfilled. The kingdom of dark darkness will be destroyed, just like the seed of the serpent will be crushed. His head will be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the uncontested rule of God will be restored. When the gospel was introduced to the Samaritans, it was framed as the good news of the kingdom of God. The phrase kingdom of God appears explicitly six times in the book of Acts, and it's a unifying theme of the book. It was the theme of Jesus between his resurrection and ascension, and it was obviously the theme of the apostle Paul as he went about teaching what he taught. Therefore, the apostolic work is fundamentally, first and foremost, about the kingdom of God as expressed through the reality that the Savior, Jesus Christ, is not only the Christ, but he's Lord. As Lord, he is the king of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is based on the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Philip's good news was about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament reveals the impotency of fallen mankind and therefore mankind's inability to efficaciously obey God and establish his kingdom. The good news is that Jesus provided the only way for the uncontested rule of God. The kingdom of God 
to be reestablished over God's creation. This is indeed good news. The validation of the good news was supernatural acts that the greatest magician in Samaria could not duplicate. Now let's go on to the final section here, which is verses 14 through 17. So let me read this. When the apostles were at Jerusalem, who were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them as the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. That raises the question of a second blessing. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So this is a fascinating text and one that's subject to a lot of discussion by different streams of Christianity. So let's just take make a few comments about it, and then we're going to talk about the theology of the question of the second blessing. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, according to 1 Kings 16.24. Remember, the is Israel was divided up into a northern and southern kingdom. To those of the southern kingdom, the Samaritans were second-class citizens who had abandoned the law of God. This is why the Jews of the southern kingdom did not associate with them. Nevertheless, Jesus mandated that his followers would be his martus. Martus is translated martyrs. And of course, we think martyrs uh, today are people that die, and that is a good way to think about it. Uh, we translate the word martus, a witness. And when we think of witness, we think about people running around sharing how they chose Christ and, and um, you know, what it is for them, what, how it's changed their life, which that's, a, that's okay, but that's not profound. Profound here is recognizing that a real martus is so committed to Christ, he's committed to death. He's committed to dying for Christ. That's really what it's after. And the word martus applies more than just to the apostles. It extended to the followers. Even though in Acts 1 8 it's explicitly directed to the apostles, the apostles, what was mandated to the apostles, now would become normative for all of us. The Samaritans received the good news about Jesus just like everyone else, but due to the cultural standing as second-class citizens, the apostles took extra care to be clear that the Samaritans would be part of the ecclesia. In other words, they understood the Samaritans were going to be part of the ecclesia, but they knew that commonly that would not be understood. So they needed to go to extra measures to make this point. So they sent two apostles, Peter and John, to go to Samaria and to make clear that the Samaritans were accepted in the ecclesia. This confirmation or validation was the impartation of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The impartation was manifested in some way so that Simon connected this reality with the laying on of hands. Now, we don't know exactly how that happened. Some have speculated that the signs of tongues manifested, but the text is not explicit. Nevertheless, whatever the sign was, it appears that it was very it was very clear, it was impacting, it was so impacting that even casting out demons, healings, and great miracles that are mentioned in prior verses were not as great as whatever this sign was. So whatever this was, was such a clear indication that the Holy Spirit had come upon them and now indwelt them that it was 
obvious to everyone, even to someone like Simon. So the process that Peter and John employed was first prayer and then laying on of hands. So please note that, that it's, this was a two-step process that reveals how God works synergistically using his people to execute his will. You see, God doesn't need any of us to execute his will. He chooses to use us to execute his will. This is the concept that theologians call condescension. You may or may not have heard that attribute of condescension. And condescension many times has a pejorative meaning. But in the sense of an attribute of God, it's not pejorative. It is a sense in which God is stooping down, lowering himself to do something he does not have to do, but he is sovereignly choosing to do, and that is to use humans as agents to accomplish his will. So Peter and John were simply agents of God. Philip was an agent of God to accomplish the spreading of the gospel. God did not have to do it this way. He chose to do it this way. He condescended to use human agents, and that's part of the way he still works. And when we get into chapter 9, you'll see again that the principle of condescension will come into play when God uses Ananias to bring, bring, uh, bring healing to the apostle Paul to return his sight to him. Now, God did not have to use Ananias. He chose to use Ananias. He condescended to use Ananias because God chooses to use human, human agents to accomplish his will. So let's take a moment now and let's talk about a theological point and then make an application. So the question of the second blessing during the 20th century, one could characterize Christianity as a century of the Holy Spirit. There was an increased focus on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, emphasizing supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, Peter stated that the entrance into the kingdom of God required regeneration by the Holy Spirit, a supernatural act on the metaphorical heart of mankind. In other words, talking about being born again was not talking about a literal rebirth, but a spiritual rebirth. The tangible evidence of this act is sometimes not immediately obvious. You know, when you, you can see when someone's physically born, but someone who's been spiritually regenerated, that's a little more difficult to see. Therefore, the tendency has been to value supernatural acts of the spirit that are more immediately obvious. Specifically, the emphasis has been on physical healings or demonic exorcisms or maybe some kind of emotional experience or the speaking in tongues. These are kinds of things that people typically look for as some kind of marker that the Spirit of God is at work in someone. Associated with these acts was the re-recognition of the apostolic and prophetic functions to facilitate these acts. So this is this what's going on here is fairly current in Christian history. It's not been prominent throughout the 2000 years of history, but rather it's the last century that we've seen this. The empowering the Holy Spirit was associated with speaking in tongues as a sign by many. If not a sign, it was the sign by many. Those who hold this view were challenged by the fact that many, if not most, professing Christians throughout the ages have not spoken in tongues. I mean, of the millions of people, and nobody knows exactly how many millions, you know, there are that have come to Christ, 
the records that we have do not indicate that a, strong, a large number of them spoke in tongues. We just don't have that kind of information. So rather than denying the genuineness of the salvation of all these people through Christian history, a doctrine of a second blessing was developed. The source of this was John Wesley. He's commonly credited with initially developing the doctrine in the 18th century as part of the Great Awakening. The 20th century Pentecostal movement embraced the doctrine and connected it to the visible supernatural acts of the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, healings, and exorcisms, and the emotive experiences that you might see at some place like Bethel. A text used to support this was the experience of the Samaritans in Acts 8. So this text in Acts 8 was a big part of their argument. Clearly, the text states that they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, when Philip spoke the message, the evangelizo to them, you know, they received it, they manifest faith in some way, and so they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Subsequently, the apostles Paul, uh, John, and Peter came down, and were, they were sent to Samaria by the other apostles and imparted the Holy Spirit through prayer and laying on of hands. This incident is viewed by many as an example of the second blessing. And it is presumed that it's to be normative, that this is to be the norm for how God works in, in, in regeneration and manifesting that internal regeneration through some supernatural act. In this situation, it's clear that the Samaritans did not receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When they were baptized, that would be associated with their regeneration. And rather, they, they received it subsequent to that, and we don't know what the time frame was, what the gap was. Uh, so that's always a challenge there because it may not be the time frame that we think. How, you know, we, we, it sounds like that when uh, Peter and John were sent down there, it was after these people had been baptized, and, and so the word got back to them, and then they went. So it sounds like that could have been a weeks or months that may have separated that those two events, but we don't have that information, so we just don't know. Now, commentator John Stott, who's one of the great uh, theologians of the 20th century, has written about this, and he has a perspective on how to understand this. His view is that this event is not to be taken normative. That is, that there's not a bifurcation between the regeneration of someone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ which is executed by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in power, he, which is associated with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he's, he does not believe that that is really what Scripture teaches. And here are the arguments that he makes. Number one, the bifurcation of the forgiveness of sins associated with regeneration from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, was not evidenced by the first Christian converts as recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 2. So that's very clear. There's not a record there that there was a bifurcation there. So and when you have, when you follow the principle of first, which is a many people view that as a very strong principle, a hermeneutical principle for interpreting scripture, you look at that first occurrence and you see that there's not a manifestation of speaking in tongues by the people who were the first converts to Christianity on that day in Pentecost. There's, there's no other example of a bifurcation of regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the rest of the New Testament. Now, that's not totally true, and I'm going to comment on that in a second. 
Samaritans were the outcast of ethnic Jews because they rebelled against the rule of Solomon's son and established their own separate kingdom. They did that. Therefore, overcoming the second-class status was a challenge that even Jesus had to face in John chapter 4. And his next argument is, and so the implication by that argument is that, that there had to be a kind of a special case here for the Samaritans. In other words, we had to have some way to overcome their second-class status, so we have not only Philip going down there, but we have the apostles now. It's kind of like the boss came down. You have a manager that was very effective in doing what needed to be done, and Philip, he delivered the message, they were baptized, and now you have the boss coming in really confirming everything, so it's clear that the Samaritans are part of the ecclesia. And then his fourth argument is Acts 8 is to be viewed in part as, as, as a fulfillment of Acts 1-8 in accordance with, the, with the, this command from Jesus, the ecclesia, not the apostles, it's an important point, because Acts 1-8 is written to the, or, or directed to the apostles, but by implication, it flows through to the, the disciples of the apostles. So the ecclesia, not the apostle, was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And so the, the basically the fulfillment of Acts 1-8 is done not so much by the apostles, but primarily by their disciples. And this suggests that the Acts 1-8 mandate was a mandate that extended to all the ecclesia. In determining if a text of scripture provides a norm for the ecclesia, one must compare scripture with scripture. Ultimately, that was what we have to get to. I, I agree that Stott has some powerful arguments here. Are they definitive arguments? Maybe yes, maybe no. I think there's question there. And it's um, is it a, is a is a potential norm to be extracted from a text consistent with other scripture. In other words, we have to look at other scripture and really consider what all of scripture says. And if we, if the scripture does not give validation to a norm, then there's a potential dubious norm. This was Stott's conclusion. His conclusion was scripture does not really support one text being largely used to describe now the second blessing as normative. So that's he, he goes on with an explanation of this by saying this about Acts 8. The most natural explanation of the delayed gift of the Spirit was that this was the first occasion on which the gospel had been proclaimed, not only outside of Jerusalem, but inside Samaria. So again, stressing the uniqueness of the Samaritans, the second-class status, and so that's why this extreme emphasis was, was gone to, and we had this bifurcation to make it clear that these Samaritans, who were the lowest of the low, were also part of the ecclesia. So finally, uh, the, though Stott acknowledged the bifurcation of forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit occurred in Acts 8 and concluded that it was not normative, however, he did not address the possibility that this bifurcation could occur in another isolated situation. In other words, you can agree that it's not normative, but that doesn't mean it didn't occur again. And there is a possible example of it occurring in Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. In this text, the Holy Spirit was imparted by the Apostle Paul through the laying on of hands to the disciples, presumably Gentiles, who had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus but had not received the Holy Spirit. Perhaps a way to understand this is found in Matthew 28, 19. And there you have part of what we, what's the discipleship mandate says, 
is to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So disciples are charged to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In this charge, is this charge a bifurcation of baptisms? Could that be inferred? The bifurcation of the baptism of the Son and the baptism of the Holy Spirit as separate temporal events is seen in Acts 8 in reference to the Samaritans, and then in Acts 19 in reference to the Gentiles. However, there are no other records of bifurcation of the baptisms, and there's not a baptism of the Father recorded in Scripture. So it looks like that rather than bifurcating these things, they all probably should go together. And we have basically some examples, uh, special examples, where a special point is being made that are listed here in Acts 19 and Acts 8 and that are not to be necessarily interpreted as normative. So I think Stott's argument has merit and is standing. So, the, But the question of the second blessing is still remains because I don't think Stott's argument is definitive. You know, perhaps it is, it is not normative. Perhaps it is normative. It's hard to be sure. But we know this, that the, the, we have this doctrine here of the ecclesia, you know, and we have a doctrine, we have an example of bifurcation that occurred. We don't know whether it's normative or not, and so we should not be highly dogmatic on our view. We should not be breaking fellowship with people over this question, and that's part of the challenge of being, you know, in Christ is being in the pain of the questions, knowing we don't have all the answers, and we should not demand that everyone believe us and take our position. We need to be tolerant of each other and we need to be accepting of each other. We should clearly not break fellowship over disagreement on a doctrine like this. Finally, a word of application. I want to speak about intolerance. The Christian standard of sexual relationships is abstinence except in the biblical covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. There are no exceptions. Historically, this biblical norm has been globally embraced as a maxim. Therefore, historically, deviations such as homosexuality have not been tolerated. Since the 1980s, however, the homosexual community has sought tolerance for their sexual preference. The cultures of the world have largely conceded and extended tolerance. As the homosexuals achieve their goal, they, have, in turn, have turned increasingly intolerant toward those who granted them tolerance. If this continues, there will be increasing persecution against those who embrace biblical norms of sexuality. Persecution is not new to Christians. One can argue that persecution that broke out early in the Christian history is really more the norm. Acts 8 records an early example of persecution that broke out in the first century. And Orthodox Jews here who rejected the claim that Jesus was the Christ went house to house arresting and incarcerating Jews and even martyring them who believed that Jesus was the Christ. The persecution began with the martyrdom of Stephen, a food distributor who dared to affirm his faith in Jesus as both Lord and Christ, according to Old Testament prophecy. The persecution against Stephen was led by Saul of Tarsus, who in time would become a follower of Jesus. But prior to his conversion to Christianity, Saul separated or functioned under the authority of the religious leaders and executed home invasions to incarcerate people for their belief in Jesus. Today, the culture is moving toward the persecution of Christians again, which will mean home evasions and possible incarcerations.
In August 2020, the Democratic Party in the USA uh, prepared for a presidential election. Party leaders submitted a preliminary draft of the party platform that eliminated any reference to God. In the final draft, however, religious rights were included, albeit perhaps tepidly. The preliminary draft signaled at least a declining interest in supporting religious rights, if not worse. This is perhaps the first time in the history of the party that it is on the precipice of the rejection of God in their ideology and therefore in their policies. Arguably, what may underlie the Democratic Party is, is the influence of the spirit of Antichrist. Has the Democratic Party become the party of the Antichrist, the spirit that opposes Jesus as the Christ? If so, Christian norms will have no standing with the party. Without Christian norms as a transcendent guide to truth, historical biblical norms will be abandoned. For example, consider social norms. Without transcendent truth, people will create their own rules of reality. For the Democratic Party, these rules will apparently be defined by the LGBTQ plus activists. Therefore, one can expect that the social norms supported by the Democrats will be intolerant of Christianity. The spirit of Antichrist will probably prevail. The spirit of Antichrist is intolerant of anyone who seeks to live according to Christian norms. If the Democratic Party gains control of the legislative and executive branches of the U.S. government, persecution of Christians is likely to break out as it did in the first century. Christians will be scattered, dispersed. They'll be pulled out of homes and possibly incarcerated, and some may even be martyred. They will have no voice in the policies and practices of the government at any level, local, regional, state, national. And they may be even be eliminated from participating in the economy, which means Christians would not be legally allowed to buy, sell, or be employed. If the persecution of Christians is severe enough, they will be forced to live in self-sufficient communal settings. Such a lifestyle is beyond the knowledge and experience of most Christians today. Therefore, if the persecution is initiated rapidly, the carnage of Christians could be dramatic. Nevertheless, Jesus is still Lord and Christ over even if many Christians are martyred. He's over all, Lord of all. And we may be martyred just like Stephen for believing in Christ and make, taking a stand for Christ. And may the Christians of the world today have the grace of God to face the spirit of Antichrist as Stephen and Philip did in the first century. And may they be willing to truly be martyrs for the cause of Christ. May we have the grace to so live in Jesus' name. Amen.